Did you hear all the reasons you can do Hebrews 11? He's the mighty one of Israel. The God of Jacob. Fierce, I love it. Fierce and great. Before whom the earth bows and the mountains melt like wax. He is for us. This sits under who God is, sits under Hebrews 11. I, I can't do Hebrews 11. You're confessing that your God is not God. He is God. He is God. The Lord of hosts. This, this name for God, it appears 261 times in the Old Testament. Obviously, this is something God wants us to not overlook or misunderstand. We can live the life He's called us to live, to live because He is the Lord of hosts. I looked up the literal translation. He is Yahweh of the angel armies. Yahweh of the angel armies. Now, how many angels are there? We don't know. Daniel, I think it is seven, yes, alludes to the fact that there are at least a hundred million, but it could be some countless number. Myriads upon myriads, it could be some countless number. And these are not cherubs sitting on a cloud with a harp. These are fierce, supernatural warriors. Yahweh of the angel armies. He's our shelter, the song says, in the fire, in the storm. He leads his people through the fiercest battle. Amen. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, Psalm 46, 7. A very present help in trouble, Psalm 46, 1. Though the oceans roar, you are the Lord of all. The one who calms the wind and waves and makes my heart be still. You know, in that, in that Psalm 46 is that great, that great verse, be still and know I am God. We've been talking about it. Faith is not easy, real faith. Now we're talking about biblical faith, not the denominational kind. We're talking about real faith, the faith that walks with God. It's not easy. It's not supposed to be easy. But he makes my heart be still, right? For I know my God is in control, as Shane and Shane sings. We've noted in Hebrews 11, it's not ultimately about Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Rahab and David, etc., etc., etc. It's about Yahweh of the angel armies, fierce and great. He's why we can do Hebrews 11. He's why He expects you to do Hebrews 11. Again, it's a backhanded, it's a backhanded acknowledgement that He's not God enough to believe and follow. If we're not Radically living our faith in the world. The Lord of hosts is with us. You guys know Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts 
has planned and who can frustrate it? And as for his outstretched hand, who can turn it back? So you tell me who can turn back the outstretched arms of Yahweh? You tell me who can? Nobody. Therefore, Hebrews 12.1. There's always a therefore with Yahweh. <laughs> There's always a therefore with Him. He says, I am God. Nobody else is God. Therefore, Hebrews 12, 1, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If we believe what God has told us about himself in the scriptures, why wouldn't we do Hebrews 11 with abandoned? Why would we not do it? There is no good reason except that we don't believe him. So yeah, I've loved preaching through Hebrews 11. I could probably do it, just keep preaching you know, through it for a year, but fun for me, not so much fun for you. It's such a foundational chapter for every lover of Jesus. In Hebrews 11, God says, here is genuine, biblical, saving, born-again faith. Now we all know if we've been in the church for a while, doesn't really matter which church we've been in. Most of them get it wrong. Men in pseudo-Christianity tend to want to make faith something less than this, something less than God says it is in Hebrews 11, maybe something a little more comfortable and a little more manageable. Man, denominations are good at this. We're really good at this. Men in pseudo-Christianity tend to want to make faith more abstract, maybe somewhat intangible and vague and, and shall we say, academic. Men in pseudo-Christianity love to reduce faith to an act of mental assent. I'll believe some facts. I'll believe some propositional truths and, you know, attend church if it's not too inconvenient. This is what faith looks like in most of the modern church. God says that is not what I'm talking about. It's not what I'm talking about. In Hebrews 11, he's given us a definition of faith. And then so religious professionals like me can't dumb it down. He, he gives us 16 named illustrations. And then he has a category called the prophets, which is another 15 or 16 guys. Effectively, what he tells us, as we have learned in the last few weeks... The genuine biblical saving faith is real men and real women with real faith in a real God making God famous on the earth. Some of you don't know that's your job. If you're a Christian this morning, your first and last job 
is to make Jesus famous on the earth. Why did David fight Goliath? We saw it last week. That the whole world would know that there's a God in Israel. And with our lives, right? With our lives, everyone in our orbit's supposed to know that there is a God in Israel. God says, real faith, it's real blood, real sweat, and real tears. Sometimes tears of joy, but sometimes tears of sorrow. We talked about the fact that the name and claimants, the, the prosperity people, they apparently never read Hebrews 11, at least the last half of it. God says, real faith shows up. It works. It struggles. It fails. It gets up. It repents. It stands. It fights. It does righteous acts. It sees miracles. It conquers. It obtains promises. Again, because the Lord of hosts is with us. As we saw last week, sometime, sometimes in God's perfect wisdom and providence, Real faith is mocked, it's scourged, it's tortured, it's imprisoned, it's stoned, and on occasion is sawn in two. Saving faith is hopelessly in love with God, whether he sends miracles, blessings, and deliverance, or hardship, trials, and death. Now, your name it and claim it, they can't go there. Your prosperity guys, they can't go there. It's a false gospel. All you have to do is know one chapter in the Bible. You know they're false. You know they're false. So we learned last week. We already knew, didn't we? <laughs> Born-again Christian knows Jesus is God enough to live for, and he's God enough to die for. We've been noting some, something of the foundation of our look at Hebrews 11. Psalm 63, 3, that God's loving kindness is better than life. It's why the men and women of Hebrews 11 lived like they lived. And of course, we, we looked at that, that, that passage in the New Testament, which echoes that reality. Philippians 1, 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We understand, the born-again soul understands that God is better than anything this life can give, and God is better than anything death can take. And if you don't know that yet, I don't think you've met him yet. Because if you've met him, you get it. You get it. You get it. God is very clear, isn't he? You heard me read the text. You can't stop at Hebrews 11.40. There's this giant mammoth, therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1. It's inescapable. You can't run from it. You can't run from it. Hebrews 11, again, in summary. Essentially, we saw that God is the substance of things hoped for. God is the evidence of things not seen. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We must not only believe that He's God, we must believe that He's a rewarding God. And if you don't believe He's a rewarding God, you'll certainly never do much more than be a church attender. 
You won't go out there and make him famous. You won't do it. But if you know he's faithful, you know he's a rewarder, you know he's competent, <laughs> you'll go make Jesus famous in your orbit. Yahweh of the angel armies is a reliable God. Therefore, he says, yes, it would be ministerial malpractice <laughs> to leave that hanging there. Obviously, our lives are, differ greatly from Noah and Abraham and Sarah and the rest, but the heart beats the same, amen? The heartbeat is exactly the same. I love this beautiful God and I am wholly His. That's the heartbeat of true faith. Yahweh of the angel armies, His loving kindness is better than life. Amen. The world read off of these men and women's lives. That God could be trusted. That's what the therefore is there for. Are you living like God can be trusted? I mean, is it evident in your life? Is it conspicuous in your life? I live the way I live because God can be trusted. God is unapologetic. In Hebrews 11, go do it. It's right there. You heard me read it. You heard Joe read it. We read it twice already. I might read it again. Therefore, go do it. Go do Hebrews 11 in your marriage, with your kids, your church, your job, your money, your blessings, your trials, your victories, your defeats, and your death. God says, I'm God enough for you to go do it. Do you believe him? And this might be one of the most important questions you ever have to answer. Do you believe him? Do you believe he's God enough? Verse 1, again, we've read it twice. I won't read it again, I don't think. But the main point of the verse is at the end. It's the imperative to run. Now we know this is a, uh, a New Testament analogy and metaphor. Uh, the Apostle Paul really likes this metaphor, this analogy. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I run with an aim, I run to what? I run to what? When are you? Are you running to win? Now we know if we've been in the church very long, there's a whole lot of people who call themselves Christians and they are not running to win. They're not. The FBI couldn't find any evidence that they're running to win. It's the imperative. Therefore, run. Run 
the race of faith. It's what my people do. We get some insight here from the Greek. Hebrews 12.1, the word translated race is the Greek, Greek word agon. It's where we get the English word agony. Are you, do you understand? This is not a stroll of faith. This is not a jog of faith. This is an all out, give it everything I have run of faith. Self-disciplined, passionate, all-consuming, persevering run of faith. A vibrant, lively, urgent, energetic, wholehearted pursuit of God. That's the signature of my life. Am I there every day? No, I'm not there every day. But man, that's the signature of my life. That's the aroma of my life. As we make our way through verse, these two verses, I want us to test ourselves. Are we running or are we coasting? Are we half-hearted and lukewarm or are we engaged in a wholehearted pursuit of this beautiful God? Are we, as verse 1 says, running with endurance? Now, I can't tell you how many Christians I've run into in the pastorate, you know, and the first hard, hard spot comes and they bail. There's no endurance at all, right? Oh, I'm a little upset about this. So much for God. Like who gets hurt there? I'm disappointed with God. He didn't perform adequately for me. It's utter foolishness. Do we believe? <laughs> As the song saying, that the Lord of hosts is on our side, even if it doesn't look like it right now. The guy that got sawn in two, right? The guy that was tortured. The guy that was put to death. God is challenging us. Are you in the race? Or are you merely a spectator? Yeah, it's one of my go-to illustrations. <laughs> I know I used it not too long ago, but I can't help it. John Bunyan's famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, an allegorical tale of a man named Christian who's on this pilgrimage to the new heaven and new earth. And at the beginning of the book, Christian is suffering under a great burden of sin and conviction. And the evangelist says, well, what do you, what do you got to do is you got to run to the narrow gate. You got to run to the narrow gate. You see it? Run to it. And Christian takes off running. Have you, really, have you begun the pilgrimage to and with God? Have you genuinely come to Christ in faith? You know the Hebrews 11 kind of faith, not the Southern Baptist kind of formula faith. Not that. 
Can I lovingly say it will take millions to hell? I did the formula. God will not be impressed with the formula. Have you made a profession of faith, a genuine public profession of faith? Have you followed Jesus Christ in believer's baptism since, since being born again? And yes, here's the definitive evidence, John, pardon me, 1 John, the definitive evidence of true conversion. Are you walking with God and obeying God? This is your assurance. Not that you obey perfectly, but man, I'm on that path. Right? I've got miles to go, but I'm on that path. Yes, these truths in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 principally address those who are already in Christ. But man, here's this open invitation for any of you who are not. For any of you who are not sure, don't waste another day wondering about it. Come to Christ today. Come talk to one of the elders. Come go talk to a Christian friend. If you're not running and you honestly know you're not running, then today start running. So let's go back to Hebrews 12.1 and see what God says about running this race first. He talks about this cloud of witnesses. <laughs> Obviously, it's the men and women of Hebrews 11. We're supposed to see their lives. Their lives are a testament to God's faithfulness. And their lives are listed here as a benefit to us that we might be encouraged and emboldened. Yes, I will do that. I will live like that. Some confuse this text and claim that the men and women of Hebrews 11 are watching us from heaven and cheering us on. That is absolutely wrong. That's not what the text is saying. We are witnesses to their lives. They're not onlookers. We are. Over the years, you know, I've had people say to me, well, I'm not like Noah and Abraham and Sarah, those guys. I'm not like those guys. And of course, what's normally meant is I'm not as good and strong as they are. I could never live that kind of life. Well, can I clue you in what you probably already know? God does not expect you to be Moses. God does not expect you to be Sarah. He expects you to be who you're supposed to be in Christ. Every child of God has a unique path through Hebrews 11. We all have a unique path through Hebrews 11, on our pilgrimage to the new heaven and new earth. Let me ask you this. Do you think you stack up with a murderer, a prostitute, an adulterer, a coward, and a liar? All of which are listed in Hebrews 11. But what did they do? <laughs> They repented, they believed, they obeyed, and they finished with God. Some of you just need to decide to finish with God. 
Man, I'm going to finish with God. I'm not going to coast on out. I'm going to finish with God. Genuine biblical saving faith is never about how you stack up. Oh, guess what? It's about how the mighty one of Israel stacks up. That's the point. He's the main character. He's the main character in Hebrews 11. And if you know him and love him, he's the main character in your life too. And that Hebrews 11 stuff is spilling out of your life. These men and women of Hebrews 11, was it... Did, did they run so well because of their impressive resumes? No, they ran so well because they were looking at the same God we're looking at. You know, the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest men who've ever walked the planet by anyone's measure. You know his formula, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Is that the formula you live by? You know, when obedience gets hard, <laughs> is, that where you, is that your default? <laughs> I can do it. If he's calling me to it, I can do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because mountains melt like wax before my God. Amen? Wow. So I'm going to ask you again, are you running? Based on what Paul has said to us here in Philippians 4.13... If you've chosen not to run, I'm going to say it to you again. Backhandedly, you are saying, Jesus, you are not God enough to walk with, to run with, to believe, to trust, and to obey when it gets risky and hard and costly. You're not God enough, and I won't do it. It's okay, I'll go to church, man. I, I, I'm okay, I can go to church. It's not a problem for me. I'll go to church. But walk with God. You know that selfless place? That costly place? Over and over again, Isaiah, those middle chapters of Isaiah, God says, I'm God. Nobody else is God. You know, that's either evident in your life or it's not. Secondly, in verse 1, God says, here's what you have to do to really be in the race. You have to lay aside every encumbrance. Okay, so we've got two things here, encumbrance and sin. Not the same thing. He talks about encumbrance and he talks about sin. We'll touch on that in just a moment. Let's stay with the running metaphor here. These encumbrances, it would be like a world-class athlete showing up to run the marathon with a 40-pound backpack on. I'm just guessing. I don't know. Some of you are trying to run this race with a 40-pound backpack on. 
these encumbrances, what are we talking about? Well, it's not, like, it's not like it's a sin. It's not like it's in the Bible. It's not in the, it's, you know, it's not in the Ten Commandments. And, you know, there's a lot of people in the church who also do these kinds of things. I, 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 can't, I can't find it in the Bible that it's wrong, but here's what you know. It does not contribute to your run of faith. It is a, in, in the very least, it's, a, it's, it's, it's neutral. But that doesn't contribute to the run of faith. You know it's that habit. It's that concern, that anxiety, that fear, that doubt, that desire, that pursuit, that indulgence, that affection. That you know you need to put it away. If you're going to be, you know, a Hebrews 11 man or woman, you've got you to put it away. There's no profit in that. I love, one of these days I'm going to preach a sermon and not quote Piper or MacArthur, but that's not going to happen today. Um, I love how Piper talks about this. The question shouldn't be, is this or that wrong, or is this or that a sin? The question should be, does this or that help me run? Does it help me run? Then he says this, look hard at your life and be ruthless about what stays and what goes. Great advice. But there's something else here, isn't there, that's important for us to understand. What was the encumbrance of the Hebrews? This is a book to the Hebrews. What's the encumbrance the writer is probably, well, not probably, is focusing in on? It's their Judaism. They wanted to come to Christ, but they wanted to bring their Judaism along. They loved their Judaism. They wanted to keep it, their legalism. It's like a lot of denominationalists I've met over the years, and I've been in a real unique position uh, for 18 and a half years watching denominations come through and how many, many people default to their denomination when we start talking about serious matters. Not the Bible, but their denomination. It's like Baptists who are more Baptists than they are followers of Jesus. Man, I, I've, I've been in the Baptist church all my life. I met a lot of these people. Listen to MacArthur talking about the Hebrews here. The temple, its ceremonies, its pageantry were beautiful and appealing. And all the do's and don'ts of Judaism were pleasing to the flesh. They made it easy to keep score on the religious life. But these were all heavy weights like a ball and chain to the spiritual life of faith. These would-be Jewish believers could not possibly run the Christian race with all of this excess baggage. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about pseudo-Christianity. He says it's painted pageantry to go to hell in. So God is challenging us to test us here. Are we merely religious? Are we merely Baptists? Are we merely checking our boxes? Or are we true disciples? And have we laid aside all the self-righteous denominationalism? This is a very big question 
for the Southern Baptist Convention in general and for you and I in particular. Whatever's encumbering your faith, God says, put it down. Put it down. So you can run unencumbered. And then the Lord says something about the sin which so easily entangles us. I've, I've always loved the, the cut, is that how you say it? Cuts, cut, katsu? Katsu, is that right? The katsu vine? It grows like a foot and a half a day or some kind of crazy thing. I love the analogy here, uh, the katsu and, and sin, right? Unrepentant, unconfessed, unforsaken sin in your life is like trying to run a race through a thicket of katsu. And if you don't deal with it, it doesn't stay the same. It gets worse and bigger and bigger and bigger. God says you got to lay it aside. You got to put it away. You can't handle that anymore. You got to put it down. And you got to run. You got to deal with your, fit, your, your, your sin. You know, the, the Puritans talk about keeping a short account with God. You got to keep your accounts short with God. You know, I've been in church a long time, talked to a lot of people. Some of you have not confessed your sin lately. I know this. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Hebrews 12.1 is pretty good. I'm going to share it with you. I don't recommend the Message Bible. But it, it's pretty good. He says, do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, it means we, we'd uh, better get on with it. Strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat or parasitic sins. I love that. And there in verse 2, there it is. All you got to do is fix your eyes upon Jesus. To continue with the running metaphor, those of you who used to run track, I ran some track. It was uh, inexplicable why I was running track. Um, the very first thing they tell you, don't ever take your eye off the finish line. If you start looking to the left or looking to the right, you will likely fall down, come out of your lane, and for sure you will be slowed. It's the first rule of running. Look at the finish line. Don't look to the left or to the right. You can't be a reed blowing in the breeze if you're going to walk with Jesus. Okay, I'm going to do it one more time. Eugene Peterson, Hebrews 12, 2. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He never lost sight of where he was headed. I love this. This is, oh, man, this is good. That exhilarating finish in and with God. Amen? Some of you aren't thinking about the exhilarating finish. Seriously. You haven't thought about it in a long time. When, when the heart obedience presents itself, you're looking at it. You're not looking at the exhilarating finish with God. God expects you to look at the exhilarating finish with God. 
And all this pales. All of this pales. I'm looking at the exhilarating finish of Yahweh of the angel armies. And you know, you, you can't help, <laughs> you look at Yahweh of the angel armies, <laughs> you, you can't help but be emboldened and encouraged. And shall I add, enthusiastic. There's this beauty and power as we've been noting throughout our look at Hebrews 11. And we saw this beautiful thing last week, right? Whether they escaped the edge of the sword, verse 34, or whether they were put to death by the edge of the sword, verse 37, it didn't really matter very much. They were looking at that exhilarating finish with God. God is better than anything this life can give and God is better than anything death can take. Yeah, I said it twice already. Okay, that's just true. We believe it. It's how, it's how we, 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 what's the word I want? Prosecute life. Believing that. So as we close our adventure in Hebrews 11, I want to re just review very briefly the maturing of faith that we saw overlaying chapter 11. Yes, I know I left part of the part of verse 2. I didn't touch the, you know, the perfecter of our faith, Jesus, who, who, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. But, but, but I kind of encompass that as we look at the ex exhilarating finish with God, right? That's what, that's what Jesus was doing. He endured the unimaginable for the joy set before him. What's the last thing you endured for the glory of God? And I'm preaching to myself. So the maturing progression of faith that we saw in the chapter, verses 1, pardon me, verses 7 through 12. Real faith always is initiated by God and the Word of God. God warned Noah, God called Abraham, God promised Sarah. And here's what I know. God is making an overture to you this morning because here you sit in, the, in His church under the Word of God. God is making an overture to you. Now you can walk out and ignore it to most likely your eternal costs. Or you can humble yourself and come to God this morning. I'm not talking about formulas. I don't care about formulas. I don't do formulas. I'm talking about coming to God. Verses 13 to 19 in chapter 11. Real faith always manifests, is always manifested inwardly, but it always spills out, right? We saw that in these lives. It's always conspicuous. Verses 23 to 29, real faith makes those hard decisions to obey God when it's costly. Right? We saw that in Moses' life. Verses 30 to 38, real faith knows God's loving kindness is better than life. And that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We understand what David and Paul are talking about. 
We have tasted this. This is how we love God. So, I think this will be the second time I've closed. Let's go back to Christian in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Took off running for the narrow gate. You know this because I, I bring it up <laughs> maybe three or four times a year. But I love it. If you give me a better illustration, I'll use it. He takes off running. You know what happens? His friends and his family and his fellow church members try to get him to stop. You don't have to be a maniac. You don't have to be an extremist. They tried to dissuade him. You know, when I left to go to seminary, the most negative things that were said to me were said by church members. And I, I think part of it was well-intentioned. I think part of it was, you know, Jim, we're concerned for you. This is kind of risky. You probably shouldn't do this. You know, you're at the height of your earning capacity. You probably, you, you know, you got a kid in college. You shouldn't, you probably, this is not wise. Not one Christian came to me with the Hebrews 11. Not one. Not one. But that's okay. I'm not looking at them. I'm looking at Yahweh of the angel armies. Amen? So the, they tried to dissuade him from running. And you know what he did? What did he do? I've told you this a couple, three times now. <laughs> he, put, he, put, he put his fingers in his ears and he just kept running. Life! Life! Eternal life! <laughs> he wasn't going to stop for those people. God's loving kindness is better than life. It's just true for the Christian. It's just true. It doesn't matter where it takes me. It doesn't matter what I forsake. It doesn't matter what I give up. It doesn't matter what it costs. So throughout our look here at Hebrews 11, God has been inviting and challenging us to live our faith out conspicuously to lay aside every encumbrance and to run like a real disciple should run. It won't be easy. It's not supposed to be easy, but it is life. It's better than sitting in front of the television. So, the question for you and me is, will we believe, trust, obey, and follow God or not? It's just that simple. It's always this simple. And I will close by encouraging you the third time I've closed. That you can do Hebrews 11. Because Yahweh of the angel armies is our God. Let's pray.